Blog Talk Radio. Hello, Leo. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is Rod in Texas. I used to hey, talk to you when George was with you. Yeah, how are you? Yes, I do. How are you? Good, thank you. How about you? Oh, great to hear from you. Yeah. We're. I don't know whether you heard what we just said. We're having um, a guest on who's going to talk about plant intelligence. Yeah, you wrote a book. It's a fascinating book. In about fifteen yeah. minutes. Yeah. I uh, I saw that on the the bio tonight when I. Tuned in. I thought you was. I was tuning in for you to read from the book of Thoth, and I wanted oh, wow. to hear what you were saying. Yeah, we we for, we had the cat. We had uh, Steve on uh, cancer study ready. Um, he was supposed to be on Tuesday, Tuesday night, and we were. We had to. Unfortunately, we had to cancel the show Tuesday night, and uh, and he was able to come on Thursday. So uh, we we put him on for this for tonight. And uh, well, thanks for tuning in, Rod. I, it's been quite a while. But you, I think you might enjoy this because yeah. Yeah. this man has a real uh, heart-to-heart, spirit-to-spirit connection to all living things. And he's really just so respectful of all the breathing, living things on the earth, plants and animals and bacteria. <laughs> and bacteria, yeah. yeah. Everything, everything is like... Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing book. I think I think and you'll enjoy him because he he's a very he's taught, spiritual person. Yeah, he's taught this for 30 years. He was out in New Mexico, and um, yeah, well, that's that goes along with some of the Native American teachings that I've I've studied. Yeah, yeah. I've been oh, happy to. I'd love to have you. You know, if you want to, you want to uh, ask him a few questions. I'd love to have you do that. I'm sure he'd be willing to answer them. Well, if a question comes to mind, I will. I'll just kind of listen on the sidelines. All right. Well, I'm so glad to, to, to hear from you. How, uh, how are you feeling? Yeah. How's your health? Well, you know, the Parkinson's has got me, and it's advancing pretty fast, but I'm still hanging in there. Well, good for you. And maybe there's some, like with so many um, diseases that we have today, there are natural cures that have been hidden from us. Yeah, one of, another one of our friends has Parkinson's, and it's, um, she's uh, struggling through that. But she's she's a journalist, and she's moving. She's, she keeps going. <laughs> she's yeah. amazing. But yeah. Well, that's all you can do, and you know it doesn't affect your mind that much. A little bit with your memory is all. So your mind is good, and uh, as long as your mind is functioning, there's a possibility of healing and uh, spontaneous healing, even. Yeah, you know, I wanted to tell you. Maybe uh, we could ask uh, uh, Steve tonight um, if he, because uh, he's an herbalist and a healer. He's involved with that. He's been involved with so many. Lyme, he wrote a whole book on Lyme disease and um, all these viral uh, problems and so on. Maybe maybe he might have, uh, uh, maybe there's some uh, herbal uh, remedy. remedy out there for, for it as well. I've read on some, uh, there are some things that they're working on. Or that that seemed to work. Uh, have you? Do you know of any uh, herbal remedies that are are being used? No, there are certain foods that uh, that uh, have to be off your list. They seem to inflame it and make it worse. But there's nothing that is beneficial, particularly that I've been able to find or know about. Well, he's been in this business for over thirty some odd years. So let's see if he. I'll uh, mention it uh, to him and see if he uh, uh, maybe he, maybe he has uh, he has something. One of the yeah, he, may, he, he may have some new information. I know that uh, right now they're considering me for that deep right. brain stimulation surgery. Well, we're reading off his website. No, this yeah. is not his website. Oh, this is not. Oh. This is. Um, I just wanted to mention to you that he spoke at a, an institute institute called Traditional Roots Institute. National College of Natural Medicine, and they have a website. You might find some information on that. It's, it's called, um, what, what's the name of the website? Traditional Roots Institute. Oh. Traditional Roots Institute. Yeah, well, there are both? several, and I've grown up in a family that has contacts all over the world. Uh, so I've benefited from that, I mean, being of the right frame of mind to begin with. But uh, my, 
Mine is a result of Vietnam service, Agent Orange. Oh, boy. Uh, so it, it's kind of hard to get to, it's, that's one of those things that's very difficult to detox out of your system. And then once the deterioration starts, it's irreversible. So, so there's a lot of environmental pollution that aggravates that and causes it. Well, there's about to be an epidemic of it. It, it, it seems to be diagnosed more and more frequently. Really? Yeah, yeah, it is, and uh, or it's it's uh, it's tough. It's really really tough. Um, I mean, half the world's got Parkinson's, and the other half's got diabetes and heart, you know, problems. But uh, yeah, I, I I appreciate what you're going through. Uh, what I what I wanted to uh, so uh, what what else is new in the world there, guy? Well, we've got a bunch of earthquakes going on down here in Texas, it seems like, really? and now the, we're supposed to get a little bit more bad weather over the holiday. Really? We haven't, we haven't yeah. heard about the earthquakes in Texas. But, uh, oh, we're plagued with earthquakes. No no, no violent ones, but Texas never had earthquakes traditionally, and now it's had hundreds in the last couple of years. Whoa. It's from that fracking. That fracking, oh, fracking. <laughs> They won't stop, it seems. They, oh, yeah, not yeah. much that people can do to stop that, apparently. Well, yeah. well there was a victory here the other day. They, they, they uh, Up in Ohio, they determined that uh, the fracking was causing all kinds of problems up there, and they proved That's it. Good. How about so Texas? They, Any luck? Well, with that litigation up there, they'll be able to, to move forward down here. They've been sitting on the fence fighting it and saying it's not proven. Now it's been proven in court, so. They're polluting the water, they're polluting everything, and they're causing earthquakes. And it's just well, they're they're dealing with the, the shape of the, the crust. Right. Uh, that's amazing. But um, I've got to call our guest here in just about in a few minutes, but I, I wanted to... Uh, yeah, if you have any questions at all for for him, please uh, please chime in. Would, would, I'm sure it'd be, it'd be uh, you know if he can answer them, I'm sure he would. So stay stay that, with us. That'd be great. Well, I'll put the speaker on so I can stay on the phone then. Okay, okay great. To the program, and if something comes up, I'll, I'll join in. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, we're gonna call our guest and. Um, I thought he had to call you. No, it's changed. We have the audio thing back. And oh, is, I had to call in before that thing came up, so I wasn't aware of that. All right, so uh, we will be calling. So they haven't changed the, the no, format? No, they just updated it. Oh, they updated it? They were in the process of doing that? I guess. When our show. You have a... Okay, well, we Hello. Hey, how are you, Steve? This is yes. Uh, hi. Hi, Steve. It's also Lila. Yeah, my. Hi, Lila. It's nice. It's nice to talk to you. I tell you, we had. Uh, I had a great time with your book. I just loved Good, it. Good. Thanks. I I think I loved it so much because um, I I'm I'm a counselor. I I work with kids. But in my free time, I spend a lot of time with plants, she's, uh, she's which, which, which I feel the same way that you do about living things. I mean, I do talk to my plants, and they do respond. <laughs> That's great. I know they do. Everybody that likes plants knows that, but, you know, uh, the rationality police get uncomfortable when we say that. Oh, I know it. And, that, you know, I and sometimes... You know, I can say this to you. Um, even sometimes I'll pick up, you know, hold on to their leaf and just, you know, tell them how beautiful it is. And they just seem to spread their leaves out. And they do. They really like that. Yeah, they, you I, I, tell me that you do that too. <laughs> of course. Me. I mean, they really like that. And uh, Barbara McClintock, that I talk about in the book, she said. They're individuals, and they have their lives, and they really like it if you pay attention to them. Oh, they do. They're just, they're just so appreciative, too. We, just, um, we live in New England, and um, 
we we had a long, really terrible winter, and then <laughs> yeah, I know it was really bad. Terrible, and then spring came and the tulips came up, and they were just exquisite. And Leo spent a lot I, of I time did, taking yeah, pictures, I and did, he'll tell I did, you. I did I did a number of series of of my tulips pictures this year because they came up so magnificent. But I, you know the the amazing thing was when I read your your book in the Plant Intelligence, I noticed that I take I take pictures of these uh, flowers every year and and nature nature photography, and I and I find. I put them on my site, but I found um, after re- while I was reading your book, it was very funny because I noticed that something that that very odd is that they seem to respond to my when I when I, to pose, you know. Oh, they that's really that's interesting. Really phenomenal because they you know they're used to it because these I've I've done this now for maybe what four years. Yeah. Okay, with the same tools and they seem to grow bigger and more, more beautiful. beautiful every year. And uh, and they and and, they, and I get up close to them and they and they put some of them like seem to frown, others seem to just blossom and they seem to you know and uh, and all the flowers around uh, around our, our our gardens uh, they they just seem to uh, you know I respond to when they see me come out with my camera they seem to just open up or they seem to just lean forward you know they what just I mean? seem to pose. sparkle they yeah, really they, they really do. It's amazing. Uh, if you go to if you go to the site, you can see all these, these pictures that I take. It's, um, uh, it's unbelievable. But anyway, uh, we, that's why I think we both loved your book. Yeah, so we enjoyed much. it. Well, great. We, we really well, one thing I need to mention is we just are having our first major thunderstorm of the year, and we have a metal roof on our house, so it's a bit noisy in here. I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you. Okay. We'll speak up. Is that better? That's a little better, yeah, thanks. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the dreaming of the earth uh, for our listeners. If you could explain that a little to them, because you talk a lot about that. Yeah, it's fascinating because, uh, you know, you, you mentioned it also in the dreaming aspect of the, in the, your writing book as well. And um, Well, the way that I, I get to it to try to... Um, explain it to people so that they can have an easy sense of it is I use two kind of primary ways of getting there. One is juggling. You know, when somebody's juggling, they can't be watching the ball or something. They get sort of a, they go into almost kind of a meditative dream state and they're responding to the shifts in the balls in their body and everything below conscious awareness you know it's it's the same way when we're reading we go into kind of a dream state and pretty soon we're no longer paying attention to words on a page but we suddenly find ourselves in the middle of a rainstorm or on a train going through russia or something like that and we kind of get into this sort of special state that everybody can get into easily we do it many times every day and so Anthony Trawavis, who's a really great researcher, he works in a field called plant neurobiology, and he's working with plant intelligence and the plant brain, which is actually very extensive. And so one of the things he says is that it's very much like that. When the, when the environment shifts, the plant takes in all of that information just the way a juggler does, and below the level of conscious awareness, it shifts its behavior to respond to whatever has changed in order to keep the balance intact. Or basically, it's it's kind of uh, uh, the way that it's living and it, its own integrity intact. And the Earth is very much like that itself. You know, James Lovelock was the first one that came up with the idea in the modern era that the Earth is a self-organized being that a superorganism that basically modulates its own temperature and environment and so all of the subparts of the earth the ecosystems the plants all of the animals they're a part of that larger system and so the everything that is is for an ecological reason and so the earth kind of is in that sort of dreaming state all the time, just like all of the rest of us can do. I think 
I think one of the things that I enjoyed the most is uh, when you were discussing the plant brain, and um, we know there is one and its location and how you express that. Could you express that for our, for our listeners? Yeah, see, one of the things that's really fascinating is, you know, we talk about somebody in a coma in a hospital, and we go, he's just a vegetable, you know, and that right. tells us right there what everybody tends to think of, you know, when they think of plants in terms of intelligence. But what's really fascinating is that plants do have a really well-developed brain, and what's even more interesting about it is that Charles Darwin was the first person that identified its location, and what it is is it's the root system of the plant. So our brain has a neural network that runs through it, and the brain is the organ that holds that neural network. Well, plants don't need an organ like we do. They use the soil, and so their, their neural net, if you take a picture of their neural net, which I have some of those in the book, and you compare it to a picture of the human brain, they look identical, and so the plant neurobiologists who've been working with plants have found that the plant brain in the root system, it has synapses just like we do, it grows just like we do, it stores memory just like we do, and it uses the same neurochemicals and neurotransmitters that we do. I mean, we've only been around as a species in our current form about 35,000 years, and maybe if you want to extend it as far as possible, maybe a million years or so. But plants have been around for between three and 700 million years and flowering plants about 170 million. So we're sort of a pattern that came along after it was already well established there. And it turns out many plants, especially the older they are, in the, because see the soil, they can keep growing their neural network forever and ever, and so some aspen root systems cover several hundred acres, and one aspen grove is over 100,000 years old, so their neural network can, in some instances, be many, many times larger than our own. That's interesting. You know, you know, you know it's funny, you're talking about um, uh, that. I, we were, I was at an emergency room the other night, and I uh, I was talking to, and I, I, we brought a copy. We brought your book because we because <laughs> we knew we were going to be there we for, be a while, for a while, and we so thought... we're still going through it. And and uh, I and uh, we and uh, Lila came across the, of course, the uh, neurosystem and how it, and the picture in the book about it. Yeah, uh, and the doctor, the doctor came in. He says, "Oh, that's an interesting book." He says, "Plant intelligence." He said, I, and I told him about it. And he says, and I said, you know. The uh, I said, you know, you know the uh, actual um, the, uh, um, the, uh, the uh, I told him that the intelligence, the, the brain of a of a plant, I said, is actually in the roots. I said, it's, a, it's almost the same as as, as our own brain neuro. Uh, we showed him a picture. I showed him the picture. He goes, oh wow, that's true. Wow, look at that. He goes, I never knew that. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's was a surgeon, you know. <laughs> He's going, wow, that's a, that's amazing. He says, what's the name? I'm going to get that book. He's, he's going to get no, your that's, book. That's interest. great. It's like, you know, a subtle uh, conversion of the system into a new way of thinking. That's nice. You know, yeah, it really grabbed him, as the, and it, that picture grabbed me, too. But, and, that, but, yeah, it did. It did. but I liked um, how you expressed, um, you know, how we are as humans. We always think that the brain is on, it has to be on the top because of the whatever the organism is. Right. That you said that uh, plants have their um, reproductive brain, organs. Right? Brain, is, <laughs> brain is in the in the soil, and their ass is in the air. In the air, yeah. No, it's really true. We go around smelling their ass, going, "Aren't the flowers nice?" You know, it's <laughs> kind of sad when you think about it, and a little bit embarrassing. But that's actually the way it works. Yes, and I, I was quite amused because I never thought of it that way, and I thought, "Gee, I was as arrogant as everybody else." <laughs> it just it just struck me as so funny. I've told a couple of people that, but they didn't appreciate the humor the way I did. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. <laughs> people sometimes have a hard time laughing at themselves. It's true. I just thought it was so humorous because I guess of my own arrogance. That's why. You know? Well, that's one of the things that the book was about too. Was that most of what we think we know about nature and the earth itself and the organisms here 
we inherited from late 19th century kind of a mechanicalist reductive orientation and most of it is very very inaccurate so you know part of what i wanted to do was give people a glimpse of how different the world really is than what we've been taught and also how incredibly amazing it is yes and you and you certainly conveyed that in your book the other thing that i was surprised is that um a lot of darwin's work was sort of twisted a lot of Darwin's work has been twisted, and that that sort of dynamic is not that uncommon. When a new movement happens, quite often over time, the most conservative, sort of reductive members of the movement sort of end up taking the thing over and twisting it around. And Darwin really wouldn't have agreed with most of what the neo-Darwinians have done with his work. I mean, he he had a sign in his office that said, remember there is no such thing as higher and lower. And he was really clear that no organism on the earth was superior to any other organism. He considered it more kind of like we were all expressed out of a common center, kind of like a a radiating bush, rather than some sort of an evolutionary escalator where human beings were at the apex of creation. And he was extremely clear that that's not what he was saying and that wasn't accurate. Well, you certainly, when you study, uh, like, biology, at least when I studied it in high school and, you know, middle school and even through college, that wasn't what I learned. No, they they don't talk about that. And Richard Lewontin, who's an evolutionary biologist that I quote a bit in the book, he's a uh, professor Emeritus at Harvard, and I have a lot of respect from him. I mean, I love the way he put it. He goes, biologists have just had a really bad case of physics envy. And so they <laughs> they tried to make everything sort of copy physics. And he said, yeah, you know, biological organisms don't really fit in that that kind of a framework. It's very different. And, uh, and so what, when we were all going to school, kind of what we were running into all of the time was, that drive for biologists to make it more like physics and that kind of reductive sort of yep. if you do this, then this happens. And it just turns out the world is is very different than that. Yes. You also said, you also said something, I was looking for the passage here, but you also said that uh, you or somebody said uh, that you quoted said Protestants screwed everything up. No, that was one of my favorite statements. It's <laughs> like, you know, the definition of a Protestant is somebody that knows that somewhere somebody's having a good time and they have to put a stop to it. <laughs> well, that's certainly that the, the uh, founders of this country were like that. But you also you also mentioned that that, that Newton uh, that, that Newton was his his linear thinking uh, and and science. I, I I think you mentioned too, in uh, as of 1956. You, you had mentioned there's something in '56 that um, some, that that everything turned around and everything became so linear and clinical mm. that that uh, you know I, I think you said it, everything became physics. Um, well, the the thing is that Newton's view of the universe and Euclid's both it holds true, but within a very narrow and limited framework. It's kind of the you know, if it's very linear. If you do this, then this happens. If you do that, then that happens, and that sort of thing. But ever since, one of the things about Einstein and a lot of the people he hung out with, Niels Bohr and um, Heisenberg and those people from back then, they were what they were doing was challenging the Newtonian world viewpoint and saying, you know, this isn't really accurate. It's only in limited circumstances that this is true. But that sort of knowledge never really sort of made it into the school system. I think it was Buckminster Fuller that said the school system tends to run 100 years behind the times. Churches run about 500 years behind the times, you know. And and right after I read that, I thought it was fascinating because it was virtually 500 years to the day that the Catholic Church reopened the trial against Galileo and decided they were wrong. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. I wanted you to talk a little bit about the function of psychotropic plants. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was looking right at that chapter. And, and, uh, yeah, well, that's, a, that's another thing, you know, that the United States has been involved in this 
huge anti-drug war thing for a long time, and we really have two different kinds of drugs that we encounter in the United States. One of them, one group are drugs that have been made by medical researchers. That's cocaine, heroin, things like that. And that whole aspect of drugs, that's really an iatrogenic disease. It's a side effect of technological medicine. Uh, it's never really talked about that way, but that's really what it is. And then the other part, what we have are all of the, the very natural drugs which are things like psilocybin and mescaline and this whole range of, of chemicals that what they really do is that they affect consciousness in very particular ways. Now, what they do is that they actually change the structure of neural networks when any kind of living organism ingests them. And what they do is that they allow more sensory data to be available to the organism. In other words, you've taken more information from your surrounding environment and it enables you to engage in more unique kinds of behaviors. It's a, it acts as a sort of a depatterning dynamic that breaks habituated behaviors and it allows organisms to innovate outside their normal frame of reference. And the interesting thing is every organism that is has a neural network a brain of some sort, whether it's bacteria or human beings or plants, it doesn't make any difference. And, and, and every one of those psychotropics affect them in exactly the same way. Plants get high just exactly the same way people do. So do um, flies and so do spiders and so do, you know, anything. And so the interesting thing is, is that those substances exist in the environment to allow ecosystems and individual members of ecosystems to when they're under pressure from environmental stressors to innovate behaviors outside of their normal response pattern so it actually enhances their survivability of organisms and ecosystems and that's its ecological function and so you know there's a natural tendency for all biological organisms to respond to psychotropics, and, and within each group, there's about a 10 to 15% of the members of any particular species. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's human beings, our, our dogs, our plants, they will then begin ingesting or, or shifting their consciousness by the ingestion of these substances, and they act as sort of a, a depatterning factor for actually what you would call kind of a narrow-minded behavior within any species, and it just really enhances adaptability. That's what they do. You know, you know I saw back uh, last year, it was around Christmas time or something, and I, I, uh, uh, I, I saw this uh, video on YouTube. Uh, somebody had sent it to me. Or I, I can't remember exactly how I found it, but it was on uh, it was on Amon uh, 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 I meant uh, a muscala, muscala, muscara, rather the the mushroom. And, uh, oh, Amanita muscaria, uh huh. Muscaria, and it was on the mushroom, and it was it, it was about the reindeer in uh, the North Pole, you know, area, and and how they would and how Santa the whole Santa Claus myth became, and the, the flying reindeer became part of the uh, part of the uh, uh, legend, as because. The reindeer, supposed that it grew up there in Siberia, all right. Right. And there's a strong, uh, there's a strong uh, uh, strain of, of that mushroom in Siberia, and the reindeers, uh, the reindeer happen to very eat it, and they really like it, and they, <laughs> and they and they start to trip on it, you know, <laughs> as well as the shaman up there. So you know that's how the, the you know the, the legend, the legend uh, of the flying reindeer became part of the uh, part of the. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's a good one. And the other thing, you know, I, there was a quote here. I was looking at this chapter eight, the function of psychotropics in the ecosystem. And it says, and I, I, I got a kick on it because it's from Nietzsche. And it says, uh, for art to exist, for any sort of aesthetic activity to exist, a certain uh, physiological precondition is indispensable. Uh, colon intoxication. You know, uh, I, I thought that was funny because it's so true as an artist and our poets or, you know, writers of any sort, 
we tend to be more uh, prone to, uh, in, you know, uh, well, well, they like uh, many, many, and I mean, that's been true since the ancient Greeks. I mean, the poets then were called poet tasters. They were people that had, had tasted this sort of mythic substance that allowed them to create their poetry. And there's a, artists, and whether it's a musician or whatever, they have the capacity to sort of go into this deep dreaming state or an altered state of consciousness, and they, they begin to pull material out of some sort of other state of being, some sort of a different kind of perceptual dynamic, and they bring it into the world. And a lot of writers, they don't really know where the story is going. The story sort of just goes through them while they're in this dream state. Poets talk about it the same way. Musicians talk about the necessity to be in the zone. And so there's that Nietzsche was really grasping that essential concept that there's a significant shift in the state of consciousness that's necessary for the creation of art. And, you know, so Nietzsche was really, he was very succinctly noticing that, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's, there's no question. I, you know, I saw an interview with Bob Dylan uh, a long time ago, and he, uh, oh, not that long ago, probably about uh, four or five years ago, and he said that uh, he, he didn't know where any of this stuff came from. Oh, those wonderful, all those wonderful songs he wrote. And all this stuff, he says, he says he can't do it anymore. He says, but... He lost the he news. He, yeah, he says he doesn't know where that stuff came from. He can't, you know, he says it was amazing when he was able to do it, but he says he really can't do it anymore. And right. uh, I thought that was interesting. You know, he's, he's about 70-something years old now, but he's probably not doing as much acid as he used to. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> but, but wherever it came from, it was great for the time he, he used it. He did it. But, it was. Uh, it was remarkable. I, I'm just curious. With um, you might know the answer to this question with um, psychotropic plants, and of course, there's probably a lot of brain research that's going on using them to um, help with some of the diseases that that we encounter today, like. Alzheimer's, the dementia. Is there any research that you know of going on with psychotropic plants in that area? They've been using it a lot ever since uh, the the mid '50s, really. And you know, for it was a it was legal for about oh, 12 or 15 years before the kind of the anti drug hysteria got built up, and they made it illegal. But they've they've been using it for a lot of conditions like that, for depression, for schizophrenia, for alcoholism, for PTSD, and and quite a few things like that. And they found that it's extremely they're extremely effective for that. But it's you know, they're they're struggling with this kind of strange conception in the government here that those drugs aren't good for anything, and so it's very hard for them to get research um, permission. But over and over again, the research continually shows how helpful it is for a wide range of conditions. And I mean, even even when you get into marijuana now, they're finding it. Uh, I mean, it's really good for epilepsy and a huge and multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's and a lot of things like that. So. These have very particular functions about helping any kind of disease associated with the neural network at all. Yeah. We have a we have a friend of, a, of ours uh, on on the line right now. He's he's, he's in uh, Texas, and uh, he called in uh, right at the beginning of the show. His name is Rod, and he he has uh, uh, Parkinson's, and he was wondering if there was any kind of uh, uh, cure, uh, herbal cure, or any kind of um, uh, thing that that might be um, help him. It might might be able to and help other people, people suffering yeah. from Parkinson's. Well, there's a number of of different plants that are actually really helpful for that, and it depends on sort of the the exact structure of the problem. Everybody with Parkinson's, for instance, has a slightly different version of that disease, depending upon how it's affecting their neural network. But it's also very similar to multiple sclerosis, for instance, and Alzheimer's and a couple of other things. And 
actually a number of people that have been using marijuana for that have reported extremely good success with it. And so um, I have a friend who was suffering from early Parkinson's as well as multiple sclerosis, and she turned the whole thing around. So that's one thing that's good for it. Rhodiola is another plant that can sometimes help. Um, lion's mane is a plant that can help. And these are things that help. Um, like in Parkinson's, one of the problems with it, I believe, is there's a the um, the myelin sheaths around the nerves begin to degenerate. So there's a number of herbs that actually help regenerate myelin sheaths, and lion's mane is, for instance, one of those herbs that's good for that. Oh, is that a, is lion's mane? Oh, oh, I'm thinking of lion's mane. Lion's mane is a particular kind of mushroom, and I think it's uh, uh, Latin as harassium, I believe. There, there's a thing called uh, lion's ear, I think it is. Uh, that uh, it's a cannabinoid, but it's a uh, daga, you know, clip daga. Have you ever, uh, no, I don't know. I don't. That's not striking a note for me. It's an estrogen from uh, it's an African uh, 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 cannabinoid, and hmm. uh, uh, I, I didn't know that that was in the same family there, the lion's mane. But you also talk a little bit in your book about the nature of golden threads. Could could you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, you, that's very prominent. And, and all yeah, that's a that's a really neat concept. I ran into that um, in the poet William Stafford's work, and he got it from William Blake, and and also the Kalahari Bushmen in Africa talk about it considerably, where they say there's ropes or threads that connect all living things together, and then in certain states of mind you can become aware of those. And William Stafford would say, you know, that what he would do is he would be working with a poem that was coming into being, and he would just allow himself to be present with whatever line sort of showed up and feel into that line, and then all of a sudden, in a way that he could really never explain, he would feel his focus of attention would be pulled to something that seemed to the linear mind completely unrelated to what he was talking about, but yet there was this golden thread, as he called it, that connected everything that you focus your attention on. There's some thread of meaning that connects it to something else. And, and so I just found it fascinating as I worked deeper with all this material that that's a concept that's common in a lot of cultures around the world. It was Gerda talked about dynamics of it, the German poet and but the Kalahari Bushman really talked in a lot of detail about it that there there are these threads of connection and you will feel it touching you or tapping on you to pull your attention to it and then you begin to follow it, that thread of meaning through the world and you find connections between things that, you know, just don't appear connected to the rational mind. But and that indeed are. Touched that, you touched on that a lot in the um, Consoling Language uh, book, which I hope one day I'll be able to talk to you about on the air as well, because that was a fascinating book. And, Thank uh, you. That's you know where I really looked at the dynamic of that in the craft of writing and went into a massive amount of detail about it. And yeah, that. But it's any kind of art form you run into that, including science, which at one time was not a reductive endeavor, but was really a certain a specific kind of art form that people use. They called them natural philosophers, not scientists. And what they did was that they developed this exquisite feeling sense to work deeply with the world. And most of what we consider our scientific knowledge from people like Einstein or any of the other great researchers from the past that we've heard about, they approached it that way, not in the kind of reductive way that we do now. You know, you're, you're, you're probably the first person I've ever known who, who is called, who's been called a bardic naturalist. Now, how do you, how, you know... Who coined that? <laughs> yeah. That was a, a, a guy that I have a lot of respect for. His name's Daniel Vitalis, and he came to see me teach one time, and he said... Well, you know what you really are. You're a bardic naturalist. And it's because a lot of the times when I teach, I use a lot of storytelling, kind of mythic storytelling and shifting of states of mind in the people 
as part of that process. And my work is very much similar to what uh, the old natural philosophers or the old naturalists would have been. That's always what I wanted to do, not what people do now. So that's where that came from. No, I have to tell you, it's funny. You're, uh, I haven't had to look up too many words over the years. I used to, I've, I've seen, I think I've seen so many of them. I, I knew the definition, but uh, you you had used uh, sin aesthetic, and I had never heard of that word before. Uh, which your, word? Which word are you saying? Synesthetic. Oh, synesthesis. That's yeah. That's a really interesting word. That's. Um, the root of the word is, is aesthesis, which is a Greek word, which means the exchange of soul essence between a human being and a, a member of the non-human world. Then it's the root of our word aesthetic. And ah. they basically said that inspiration comes from out in the world. You literally breathe in the soul essence from something else in this exchange, which they called aesthesis. And it's always accompanied by this gas because it, 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 there's a deep breathing that happens. Well, synesthesis, when you add that, what that means is that when you're in that state, there's a blending of your sensory modalities into one unified whole. In a really reductive way of looking at it, it means people smell colors, for instance, or they hear colors. Or they feel sounds. It's where their sensory modalities begin to blend together. And there's some musicians, for instance, that basically smell all of the sounds they're working with, or they see the sounds they're working with. But in in its purest form, what it means is that literally, there's all of your senses become unified into this one thing so that they're not really separated. You're literally smelling, tasting, feeling, hearing. Um, all of the, everything you encounter has all of those aspects to it. You know, you know what was interesting is that I, I, I went to my uh, uh, unabridged dictionary and it wasn't in there. <laughs> right? And I went, wait a minute. I then I went to, uh, then I put, I, I put it into Google and there it was. You know, it came up under Wikipedia. <laughs> but, uh, so it's a, it's a newer word, I guess. Uh, well, it's actually, it's actually kind of an old word because it's, it's been recognized as a medical condition for a long time, so I'm kind of surprised it wasn't in that dictionary. No, Annabridge, uh, Annabridge Dictionary. It's probably an older one, but you know, it's probably 20 years old. But I, uh, I, I was, I was surprised. Where are places? And then I asked a number of people that I thought would be in a school that I work in. And I, and I, 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 I said, have you, have you heard of this word? And one guy was an English professor. He said, No, I never heard of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I asked the science teacher. Uh, I said, "I said, Larry, uh, have you ever heard of, of synesthesis?" He says, "No, no, I never heard of that one." <laughs> so, uh, interesting. And, and an English professor who didn't know, you know, hadn't heard of that word. So it's always it just shows you there's always new things yeah, to learn. Yeah, so, so it was funny, you know. I just thought, well, that's a new one on us. So, but uh, you're, uh, but no, that 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 was a fascinating. Uh, I, I hope that we can get a chance to talk about that book too in the in the future. Uh, that would be great. Because I I was um, I was so so enthralled by that because I've been writing for so many years. I've got a published book and so on, but the uh, in my website. But um, uh, I'm so I was uh, you 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 you, uh, you hit a lot of truth there, and uh, opened my eyes to a lot of a lot of areas that. Uh, I took for I took for granted, but didn't really um, never put a label to it. I guess you know. Yeah, uh, thank you. Writing in the dream world, yeah, that's basically where you are, even in writing nonfiction. You know, um, right? You know, creating something from nothing. You know, so I I I I appreciated that very much, as I did this book. Yeah, can you. you talk? A, a, do you uh, tell the folks that are listening? You have a website that they can go to. Can they order your book off the website? Oh, they can get it from there. They can get it from Amazon.com. Either one. It's uh, guyanstudies.org. G-A-I-A-N-S-T-U-D-I-E-S.org. 
Okay. And they can get it there or they could get it off Amazon? Yeah, surely. As a, as a parting statement, do you have something that you would like to leave our audience with? Oh, we still got 10 minutes. But we'll have uh, about, yeah. yeah. So do well, you have some parting thoughts? We just have a few No, minutes. I do. I always have parting thoughts. The, you know, the One of the primary things that my work over the last 30 to 40 years has really shown me is the importance of of cultivating the feeling sense. And all of the people that I talk about in these books, you know, the great um, natural scientists and researchers and and writers and all of the people that I've, I've come to admire over the years, they've all been really clear that the root of everything is the feeling sense. And, and if that's different than emotion. It's like everybody knows what that feeling sense is. When you we all do this. You walk into a restaurant. We've all had this experience. You walk into a restaurant, and then you stop, and you look at your friend and go, this place feels really weird. Let's leave, you know? Or you come home to your house, and you expect somebody to be there, and you walk in, but the house feels vacant and empty, and, you know, nobody's really home. So we have this capacity to feel, to get information from the world around us through that feeling sense and that's really the root of all of this work you know barbara mcclintock who won the nobel prize for her work with corn transposon said to do what i've done you must understand you have to have a feeling for the organism and it will tell you every step of the way where you need to go next i never went any place that the corn did not first tell me to go and so i always encourage people to recultivate that feeling sense in themselves and to begin to trust what it tells them because you end up then living a fully inhabited life companioned by and sold phenomena that you in, meet every day of your life. And, you know, the Kalahari Bushman said, it was fascinating, this elder said to this guy named Bradford Keeney, they go, uh, you've got to tell people to wake up their hearts. And he goes, well... It's really hard to explain that to people and to America. And she says, what, when they get up out of bed in the morning, what do they tell their hearts to go back to the sleep? Do they keep bumping into feelings that they don't know what they mean every day of their lives? You must tell your people to wake up their hearts. And James Hillman, who I really admire, he said, we must reclaim the response of the heart to what is presented to the senses. And that's really the way out of the particular predicament that we find ourselves in at this time in culture. So that's kind of the what I've been saying for a long time. That's always my parting comments. I have to ask you before, before you do that, uh, your feelings on geoengineering and what's happening now in, in, the, uh, in the environment, in the atmosphere, what they're doing, and how is it affecting the, the, the entire world, um, you know, with chemtrailing and, uh, you know, GMOs and, The problem with a lot of this stuff is, you know, these are really, the scientists engaged in this are really children playing with matches who don't understand the significance of fire. And when you really begin to understand how living organisms really are, about their tendency for self-organization, the nature of nonlinearity and how the world really is more accurately works, you begin to understand that tinkering with that stuff is going to produce these weird side effects that can never be predicted because they're working in nonlinear systems with a linear kind of thinking and approach. And it's, it's a kind of arrogance. I mean, that's, that's what all of the mythological stories were about. It's like, you know, it never makes sense to piss off the gods because, you know, they get even, and so that's sort of the dynamic, and it's that kind of hubris of going into the world thinking we understand something when we have basically very little actual knowledge of what's really going on here. Leo, can I interject at this point? Yeah, this is Rod, by the way. Uh, yes, you, you could ask a question, Rod. Yeah. We have about five minutes. Yeah. Yes, uh, I understand and agree with everything you're saying about the interconnectedness of living organisms. 
but you talk about the Kalahari Bushmen, and I'm sure that their their belief system is pretty much identical to the North American Native Americans. Is that not so? Well, they're all slightly different. I mean, there's over 430 different tribal groups in the United States, very few of who get along with each other, by the way. So there's, when you get into specifics, they're very, very different. But at the core of, of almost all pre-industrial tribal groups is a fundamental belief that everything is alive, everything is intelligent, everything is aware, everything can communicate, and that human beings are only one form of life on the earth, and that there's a necessity for a kind of respect in approaching the rest of the world. That is sort of the most common framework that you can find in virtually every indigenous culture on earth, and is really kind of the root of their approach. So they may have particular religious forms that grew out of that, and in each group it's going to be different. But at the root, there's a, a deep similarity, you know. Well, Mike, more to the question that I was trying to get to, uh, you, you, you mentioned organic uh, beings and, and spirits and minds being interconnected, but you did not include mineral spirits and crystals, and I wondered whether or not that was intentional or it was just a subject for another day. Oh, well, that's the thing. You know, I tend to, like, stay in this certain area because that's been my focus for a long time. And I'm a big fan of Buckminster Fuller um, and his work, and he made some succinct comments about that. He goes, you know, scientists actually can't find the point where animate and inanimate matter diverge because a lot of things considered to be inanimate also possess characteristics that supposedly only belong to animate matter and vice versa. So, you know, it's I'm creating enough controversy as it is by telling people that plants are often more intelligent than human beings and they have a sophisticated language and engage in tool making and they have memory and they teach their offspring. I mean, that's huge enough without me getting into crystals and stuff like that. So, you know, that I'll leave that for another day. Well, I wasn't trying to expand the subject. I was just wondering whether or not you intentionally excluded the plant and, and the minerals. Right, well, that's, what, that's why, you know, this, this, this other area is really my area of focus, and uh, that's cha- I find it challenging enough, yeah. More than enough to, to, to ponder for certain. Yeah. We want but to I, I don't you. disagree with anything you've said. As a matter of fact, I very much agree with it. Uh, I think even Einstein said all things are related. Yes, he did, (laughs) as a matter of fact. Well, we want to thank you very much for being on the show, Steve, and we thank you, Rod, for bringing up the question that you did. And joining us. And And I I hope, Stephen, we'll get you back on. It was a fascinating discussion. Yeah, we'd love to have you back on. And I enjoy uh, your relaxed approach and your humor with everything. Um, no, thanks very much. I appreciate being on. I, I, you know, thanks very much for asking me. And of course, I'd love to be on again. Oh, thanks, great. thanks very much. Now, maybe the next one we can talk. Well, we we can recap the, the the planet intelligence. But I'd love to be able to talk to you more about consoling language. You, you put a lot of that would be great. Thought into that one. All and, right, uh, that's appreciated. Well, thank you very much, and uh, we hope to talk to you soon. Yeah. Okay. Be well. Bye bye. Good night. Thank you. And thank you, Rod. And hey, Rod, thank you for joining us. Uh, well, thank you for being there. Yeah, I'm glad you're glad you're. Yeah, yeah please uh, feel free to join us anytime. You know. Yeah, yeah I we'll, enjoyed the program this evening. Uh, and next week, we'll, uh, Leo will get back into. I'll be doing. Yeah, I think unless Maria. No, I think you know Maria uh, fix uh, Algeria. Uh, she may be on next week. Um, I haven't. Uh, you know, have you have you talked? Do you know Maria? No, I don't. Well, she was one of George's best best buddies there, and she's a psychic. Um, and uh, we, she, she, she and George, uh, working together uh, during the Montauk era uh, period there. And, oh well, then uh, I may know her, and I just can't remember. It's been so long, but that is when Maria. George was recalling his Montauk experiences that I met him. 
Oh, yeah, her name was, she originally was uh, Maria Fix. Uh, she was psychic and um, a very, very powerful psychic as well. And uh, we've had her on the show a number of times, but uh, she has, she's been uh, ill and she's been absent for about a year or so. And uh, she, she wanted to come back on the show. She's feeling, she's feeling a lot better. So I think we will be having her on next Thursday. And uh, you're more than welcome to join us then. And uh, if you're uh, Maria, Maria Fix, it was her, uh, ma- her uh, maiden name. And uh, she was uh, Maria Fix Algeri, which is uh, she was married about, I don't know, 15 years ago. Well, I'll keep that in mind then for next Thursday. Yeah, George. That would be good. Uh, she was best buddies with George in Long Island there for about 30 years. So, um, but. What I was curious about, you was going to read about uh, the Book of Thoth. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, I planned to do that, and then I wound up having to put uh, that to... Uh, I had Steve originally scheduled for uh, for Tuesday, and then I had to cancel Tuesday's show, so I moved into Thursday. And then Maria called and said she'd like to be on the show, so I said, okay, uh, how about next Thursday? <laughs> so... Uh, I want. I, I intend to get back into the talk into the, into the readings uh, within the next week or two. Absolutely. Well, my interest in that was uh, you you referred to an author who wrote the book. And I had never heard of that author before. It was always my belief that Aleister Crowley was the one who wrote the Book of Thoth. Oh no! Oh no! No! Um, no! It, actually, it was uh, no. Uh, Thoth uh, wrote the Emerald Tablets. You know, as far as I can tell, I mean, you, if you go to crystallinks.com, you, the Emerald Tablets are there. Or if you go to my own website, I have a link to, to Crystal Links uh, there and the Emerald Tablets. Uh, well, the tablets were always there, but they were never able to interpret them. It was Aleister Crowley who wrote the Book of the Law who interpreted them and translated them. Oh, it didn't say that it was translated by Aleister Crowley. It was just... Um, uh, it's just they were translated there, and the entire works were there. Fascinating works. I, I read them a number of years ago, and, and George introduced them to me, and uh, and uh, just been really was really amazed by it. So yeah, that's uh, one of those areas where if you don't know where you're going, you better have a guide because it's pretty dangerous stuff. Oh, it is. It is. You know. You know. It's funny. I, I published the word Zinuru. Uh, I, I I I I put it up on my website. Oh, about I don't know seven or eight years ago uh, when I was studying this. And, you know, that was what uh, Toth said, that if you wanted to call him, all right, then you all you had to do was say Zinuru, all right? And it's funny, ever since I put that up, um, I must have had, I must have, I probably had thousands, I mean that, thousands of searches for Zinuru that they've come to my website because of that one um uh, I just put up the word, you know, and uh, put up a connection point. Oh, absolutely! And uh, but it's very fascinating because it was like if you wanted to, Todd said, if you want to contact me, if you want me to appear, or you want me to whatever, just say these words. And uh, yeah, of course, I said those words, and he's never really appeared, but uh, <laughs> in that form. But I thought it was fascinating anyway, and that and uh, and. Emerald tablets are a remarkable uh, work. So I'm unfamiliar with them. George never mentioned them to me. Oh, oh. Well, he 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 was quite into into them for for some time. He, he introduced them to me. Uh, but uh, he was so involved with fractals the last couple of years of his life. When he talked to me, he well, seemed that like is, that's all he was interested in was fractals and and of course is, always sacred geometry. Yeah, the Mayan calendar as well. He was really um, we 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 spoke about that almost every week. Well, yeah, that was a subject of broad interest. But, uh, but no, we uh, I, I miss old George, and he uh, he's quite uh, he was. Uh, but I have I've been I've arch- we had almost 250 programs that we did together, uh, and I've and I've archived them all. But I'm trying to put them all on, on my website. As well, but they're also on the Blog Talk uh, Radio archives. Um, so um, you know, I'm just trying to. It just takes a, a long time to put 250 programs into your website, 
know what I mean? Oh, yeah, it certainly does. <laughs> but I've I got about 100 of them in there right now, so I'm hoping to um, to put all of them in, in the next, uh, before the end of the year. So, yeah. Uh, go back to them. But, uh, Rod, I, and the show's over, but I'm, I'm sure glad you called. It's been, it's been fun to talk to you again. It's and, good uh, talking to you, Leo. You're always on my mind. Ah, uh, thanks. And talk You're to, a good and, friend. And, oh, thanks. And call, and call us next week. Uh, Maria should be on, and if, if she's not, um, for some reason, uh, I'll be doing the talk. Uh, I'll be doing the Emerald Tablets. Uh, That'll be good. I'll, I'll try if I can. Okay. Well, you take care of yourself. I hope, uh, I don't know, uh, he came up with a couple of things for you there, some some remedies. Uh, I, one I never doesn't heard of. understand Parkinson's. Parkinson is a deterioration of the pineal gland for the most part. And then it's just symptoms. Or oh, Rodoya or something which was. Did you hear that? What was that? It's herb? an herb, yeah. It's called uh, Rodia. Rodia, Rodiola. Rodeola.